Good morning again. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. And so this morning we return back to the book of Numbers. We were there just recently two weeks ago, and we return back again this morning. And so to get us caught up to speed before we get into Numbers 21, there's been a lot that's happened in Israel since we were last here in chapters 13 and 14. And so if you haven't been with us, the story of Numbers uh, is the story of Israel in the wilderness, the 40 years in between the exodus out of Egypt and before they enter into the promised land. And so two weeks ago when we were in chapters 13 and 14, we saw Israel on the edge of Canaan. They were on the edge of the promised land, but they refused to enter it. And so Israel at this time is a people that is marked by disobedience. And so God, what he does is he bars anyone over the age of 20, and he says they cannot enter into the promised land. And so Israel has gone off the rails, and since then, since this proclamation that you will not enter into the promised land, there's been more complaining by Israel. There's a huge rebellion by a guy named Korah in which he seeks to overthrow Moses and Aaron. And then Aaron's reconfirmed by God that he is the chosen priest of Israel. And so God gives Aaron all these laws on how to be a priest, and then he gives him laws on how to remain pure. And then we come to chapter 20 of Numbers. And so chapter 20 marks the 40th year of Israel in the desert. So it's been 40 years since those actions, those events of Numbers 13 and 14. And so in many ways, we see Miriam dies and Aaron dies in chapter 20. And so in many ways, chapter 20 marks the end of that rebellious generation that we were talking about two weeks ago. That generation that disobeyed the Lord, they are dying out. And so Numbers 21, the chapter in this morning, it marks the beginning of the story of the new generation. It's the new generation as they go into the promised land. It's the generation that would reach the promised land. And so their story begins with something that had never happened before in the history of Israel. In chapter 21, they were able to win a battle over the Canaanites. First time it's ever happened in the history of Israel. And how are they able to do this? Well, verses 2 and 3 tells us of chapter 21. It says they were able to achieve victory because they sought to rely on the Lord and He delivered them victory. It's amazing. They listened, they obeyed, they looked to God for their victory and He gave it to them. And it's a significant victory because it took place in Hormah. You might not remember Hormah, but Hormah is the same place in chapters 13 and 14 where Israel was defeated and caused them to stay in the desert for 40 years when they tried to enter the land on their own strength. And so basically what Moses and God has been saying all along, if you would just listen, the promised land is yours. And so now we come to this new generation in Numbers 21. Will they be different from their parents, or will they be the same? Let's find out. Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. It's a short passage this morning. I owe that to you after doing two chapters the last time I preached. So, five verses. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Have you heard that before? 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we seek His help to understand it? Father, what a wonderful passage that we have before us, a passage of healing, a passage of rebellion, a passage of intercession. But Father, we are just simple-minded people, and we need your help to understand this passage. And so we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and illumine our minds. Father, teach us this morning. We wish to see your son Jesus. We ask that you show him to us. We pray this in the name of him. Amen. Well, there's a filmmaker that I like to watch some of his videos of, and he does film on, he basically does documentaries on pop culture and media, and he's, his name is Kirby Ferguson, and he's best known for this fascinating series that he does on YouTube called Everything is a Remix. Everything is a Remix. It's awesome. You should check it out. And so it's in this series that he talks about things like music and movies and iPhones, that they are not original ideas that they're all remixes, there's never been an original story. It's just repeating an earlier iteration. And so it's very interesting, it's very well researched. And so a few years ago, he did a video on Star Wars The Force Awakens. And as a Star Wars nerd, I had to watch it. And it was great, it was wonderful, and basically in the video he lays out a case that episode seven of the Star Wars franchise, The Force Awakens, is basically a copy of episode four, A New Hope. And so here's some parallels that he draws from the two movies. It says, the movie begins with an old Jedi that must be found. Important information is hidden in a cute-looking droid. Then that droid is found on a desert planet by an orphan. Then stormtroopers come, and they search for the important information in the droid. Well, the droid finds the heroes. And then the heroes narrowly escape in the Millennium Falcon. Then the orphan meets an elder figure, a mentor to him or her. The mentor figure dies at the hands of the villain. Spoiler alert, they've been out for a while. Um, Then the villain has a weapon that can destroy planets, and seemingly this gigantic weapon always has an an insignificant weakness that they're able to exploit to explode. There's several explosions in Star Wars. The similarities go on and on and on between these two films, and I'll stop boring you about it. But Ferguson concludes this. He says, The Force Awakens clearly is a remix but so is everything else. It's how Taylor Swift can say, I think I've seen this film before and I don't like the ending. Everything is a remix. And so on first glance, our passage this morning looks like a remix. It looks like Israel is doing the same old things. We come to this new generation, we see this massive victory that God gives them, brought about by trust in Yahweh, and it takes two verses Two verses before we get in verse 5, you can take a look at it, and the people spoke against God and Moses. 
This is the very thing that Israel has said over and over and over again. Why did you take us out of Egypt? Why did you let us come out here to die in the desert? It was in our passage two weeks ago, and it's repeated all the way over and over back to Exodus 16, which is just one chapter after he parts the waters of the Red Seas and they walk through it. You know, they're seeing these amazing miracles, these amazing ways in which God is working, and they're responding with, we wish we were back in Egypt. We wish we were still slaves. And so is this just another remix, this story in Numbers 21? Is it more of the same? Well, what I want us to see this morning is that Yes, there is more of the same, but there's also something different about this generation. We're going to see that this morning by looking at three points for us this morning. Three points. Sins, serpents, and salvation. Sins, serpents, and salvation. So let's look at our first point this morning. Sins. And so we've just seen in the introduction that the people of Israel, they're grumbling, they're complaining against God. And as we've seen in the past, this is a grievous sin. In fact, so much so that they're grumbling and they're complaining barred them from entering into the promised land. It was so costly that they could not make it to the promised land. And so our first point is entitled sins because that's exactly what Israel does here. They're immediately committing a lot of sins. And I can think, I can point out about three or four sins that they do here. The first sin that we see is that the people became impatient. The people became impatient. And so they've been in the desert for 40 years. And now they're mobilizing, they're heading for Canaan. And we see in the first half of the verse that they're at Mount Hor, and they go set about in the direction of the Red Sea. Now, the geography of this land is actually really important to us here. And so the direct route to Canaan is to go through this country called Edom. So they're at Mount Hor, they're going towards Canaan, and Edom lies between them. But what we didn't read is in chapter 20, uh, they go to Edom and say, can we cross through your lands to get to Canaan? And Edom says, no. And when they say no, they bring out a giant army to enforce you can't come through here. And so all of a sudden, they've got to backtrack and go all the way around Edom. And so they head backwards, back towards the Red Sea, back towards the direction that they were coming from when they thought that they were going to be heading forward. And so this has to be a demoralizing thing for Israel, right? They're headed towards the promised land, and yet now they have to turn backwards. John Currid is an RTS professor and an Old Testament scholar. He points out that they're seeing no progress in their march towards Canaan. And so for us, we can sympathize with Israel and say that it's completely understandable that they would be impatient. They've been here for 40 years. A whole generation has died out. We totally get why... They are impatient. However, it's not inexcusable to be impatient. Paul tells us in Galatians that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And so to be impatient is to be in sin. And so we can see how sin progresses here. Right? It starts off as just a little bit of impatience. And all of a sudden it's grumbling against God. They're turning their back on God. They're disobeying God. Sin is progressive starts with something normal and minuscule, and then it can spiral out of control to forsaking God. So this is the case with Israel. It starts with impatience. They're frustrated, and they become impatient with God. You're not doing the things that you said that you would do on my timeline. The second sin that they speak against God and Moses, they question God's plan of redemption. And so there's actually more than one sin wrapped up into this, but I just kind of summarized it into one. But the fact that they're even speaking against God would be blasphemy. 
This is Yahweh. This is the creator that they are speaking against. And they treat God with such disrespect and irreverence by speaking against him. And so they question his plan of redemption. They question his plan to get them into the promised land. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? There's nothing here. There's no food. There's no water. We're going in the wrong direction. This is a terrible plan. Who's really in charge here? I demand to see the manager. That kind of thing. This is not a good plan. And in the route that they were taking, it was hard and it was dangerous. This is not smooth roads. This is like driving through South Mississippi. Potholes everywhere. And so what about the plans that God has for you? What about the plans in which he has called you to be in, the place that he has you in right now? We have our own stations and our own stages of life that we've been called to. And so we see it all over Facebook. We see it all over Instagram, quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, for I, tr- I know the plans that I have for you, but do we trust that? Do we trust the place that God has put us in right now? Are we content with the unfolding of his plan? Israel was not. Israel was not. They did not like God's plan of redemption for them. The third sin that they commit is that they doubt his provision for him. They doubt God's ability to even provide for them. And so this has to be the most outrageous claims that Israel says here. It's impossible to look at the history of Israel and say that God can't provide for me. I mean, God has been with them in the shape of a pillar of fire and cloud, right? He's he's made water come out of a rock. He's separated the waters of the Red Sea. Manna has fallen down from heaven. Quail has been given them to eat. How could they possibly say that you can't provide for us? They've had all these miracles, miracles, all these extraordinary things that had to happen to even get them here. And so first of all, this is just a flat out lie that they say here. It's a flat out lie. And so God has given them manna. He's done all these things for them. And so they've existed for 40 years in the desert without starving and without thirsting to death. And so it's not that they don't have food or water, it's just that they don't like the food or water that God has provided for them. And that leads us to the fourth sin. They're ungrateful for the ways that God has provided. They call the food worthless. And so this word can also be translated as miserable. Why did you give us this miserable food? It's not worth anything. So this is the bread of heaven that we're talking about here. And they're calling it worthless. In fact, the manna that was rained down from heaven was so important that Hebrews 9.4 tells us that when they had the Ark of the Covenant, they put some of the manna inside a gold jar to be in the Ark of the Covenant. That's how important the manna was, and they call it worthless. They had the audacity to call it worthless. And so this is a far cry from how Israel acted after they crossed the Red Sea. When it says in Exodus they were seeing what God had done, this is what it says. They said, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They've come a long way since that. And now look what they're saying. The words they're saying now echo those past rebellions that they've had. We've seen them over and over and over again. And what we see over and over and over again, that God always responds to them in their rebellion. And so Israel doesn't trust his plan. They don't like his leading. They don't believe that he can provide for him. And they don't like the way that he's provided for him. And that's the situation in Israel. But before we look at how God responds, how are we doing with this? How do we do with these things? Are we ever impatient or annoyed when things that don't go our way? There's a book by Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. 
sins that we tend to tolerate in our everyday lives, and one of the ones that he lists is impatience. Do you ever try to make, take matters into your own hands and not rely on God? Do you ever take what you have for granted? Why did you give me this worthless food? Are you ever ungrateful for what you've been given? I remember a vivid conversation that I had with my mom one year. It was my birthday, and I was having a birthday party. My mom had to sit me aside and she said, Now, Jeremy, if you get a gift that you already have or that someone has already given you, you still say thank you. I had to learn that I had to be grateful for things. I'm often impatient, and we live in a culture of impatience. When we want something, we want it now. Our smartphones, our TVs, they don't help us this. We have access to the information in an instant. In addition to this, we can doubt the place that God has us in our lives. Is this the job that I should be working? You know, have we ever thought it wasn't supposed to be this way? This is not the way that I had planned. I, I didn't think this is where I would be at this point in my life. So the point is that we're all like Israel, every single one of us. And every time that we sin, it's tantamount to the same sins of Israel. And so it's easy for us to see the rebellion of Israel and not assign that same spirit of rebellion to ourselves. We're rebels. But as I said, God does respond to this. So let's look at our second point, serpents. If you look at verse 6, we can see how he responds here in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of people of Israel died. So the result of their sin, the result of their grumbling and their complaining of this new generation was the same result of the grumbling of the old generation. God sent his just judgment in the form of fiery serpents, snakes, vipers, and they had a bite that was lethal. And the text tells us that many people died from these serpents. I love the connection that Ian Duguid draws here. I quote him every single week and probably going to keep quoting him throughout numbers. But this is what Ian Duguid says. He says, the wages of sin and unbelief continued to be death for the new generation as it had been for the old. So for the wages of sin is death. You might have heard that before. When Israel sinned, they turned their backs against God and it resulted in death. So stick that in your back pocket for now. We're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But this seems like such a random punishment. Like, why snakes? You know, was God like, well, I haven't done that one before, so let's let's throw some snakes out there. Nobody likes snakes. Well, some people do, but I don't. But why snakes? Is it because they're in the desert and snakes live in the desert? Well, I think this is another example of how there's a purpose and a deeper meaning behind the things that God does. And so he's not arbitrary. It wasn't just like a a dice roll and snakes pop out. He's not arbitrary. And you see, what every Israelite would have known about snakes is the role that serpents played in Egyptian culture. Snakes were a symbol of Egyptian power, and they were even on the crown of Pharaoh. And so this is another picture of the irony that when the Israelites want to return to Egypt, God sends them a sign of Egypt to plague them. This happened in chapters 13 and 14 as well. You want Egypt? Well, here you go. Here's snakes. So, however, I think we have the temptation to think that these serpents are just for punishment, right? That, that, that needs to pay back. This is payback for them turning their back on God. But the point of discipline, the point of punishment when God disciplines us is not just for discipline's sake, 
but rather discipline is used graciously in that it's meant to bring someone back. It's meant to bring someone to repentance and confession. Galatians 6.1 says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Not payback, not punish for the sake of punishing, but that it's there to restore them. It's there to bring them back. And so even in our passage, when Israel is disciplined, it's meant to bring them back into the fold. It's meant to bring them back under God's care to restore the relationship that they broke with God. And so in response to discipline, it brings about repentance and confession by the people. Verse 7, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so it's here that we see the shift between this new generation and the old generation. They have true belief and true repentance over their sin. And where we see this significant shift is that the last time that we have recorded, uh, sorry, that this is the last time that we have recorded that Israel grumbled about the desert. This is it. Right here, they, they grumble. We wish we were back in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out here? It's the last time that we have recorded that this happens. And so there's been a change. This familiar refrain doesn't occur again. There seems to be a true change of heart in this new generation. And so Moses, what he does is he intercedes as he always does. He intercedes on behalf of the people, and God sees their repentance, and he provides a way for them. And so before we look at how he provides, let's examine again ourselves for a moment. Are there any fiery serpents in our lives right now? Are there, are there things that we are dealing with? Is there a trial that you might be going through that could be a big sign that says, run to God? Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the dark course of affliction. He uses the whole range of our experiences to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Is it possible that the affliction that you might be feeling now or that you felt in the past could be a result of God's mercy towards you to pull yourself back to him? What might the Lord be prompting you to do today in response to whatever trials that we see that we're going through or that we will go through? And then lastly, let's look at our last point this morning, salvation. As I've hinted, in response to their faith, in response to their repentance and their crying out for help, God does indeed provide a way. And so if you look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses, he goes and he does exactly what God tells him to do. He creates this serpent made out of bronze, and he places it on top of a pole or a standard. And so the people of Israel would be used to this. In the center of the camp, there would be this, this standard that would rise up that would communicate crucial information to maybe the troops or maybe to the people about what's going on inside the camp. So everyone could be able to see it. And so they put this bronze serpent on a pole where all of Israel can see it. And the text says it twice. Anyone who has been bitten by the snakes, all you have to do is look at the bronze serpent and be healed. It doesn't matter if they were bit once or bit a thousand times. If they looked at the bronze serpent, they would be healed. And so notice something important here in this passage. The requirement for them is not like the past requirements where they had to perform these sacrifices, where they had to do all these things in order to appease, to atone for their sin. The requirement is not to perform a ritual. It's not to go about doing a certain deed. The only requirement that they have is to look, to see the bronze serpent on the pole. Look to the bronze serpent and be healed. 
That's going to show back up in just another minute. There's something that we really, something really important here that we must point out. The healing power for this venom, the antidote of this venom, doesn't lie within the bronze serpent itself. Okay, there's, no, there's nothing magical about this bronze serpent on the pole. Rather, it was a sign, and the healing power came through the looking at the sign by taking the Lord at his word through faith. So it was their faith that when they looked to this bronze serpent that they would indeed be healed. They trusted that it would happen. Hear what Duguid says about this. The people were to look intently at the bronze serpent, putting their trust in the power of the Lord's victory over evil, and then they would be healed. It is not coincidental that the Lord chose this means of healing for the people, for faith is the key marker of those who would enter into the promised land. Faith is important here. And so to bring us back full circle, hasn't this always been the case? Why did the first generation not make it to the promised land? It's because they did not have faith. And here they are, looking in faith to the serpent for healing. Only those that had faith could enter the land. And those who believed looked on the serpent would live. But there's something even greater going on here in this passage. There's more that this story pictures than just a salvation for Israelites. More than just a healing from a snake bite. This passage foreshadows a greater salvation that's to come for all of God's people. And so, in fact, in John chapter 3 in the New Testament, Jesus is talking with Nicodemus. And he's explaining to Nicodemus what faith is and what faith is like. And so, Jesus, in John chapter 3, verse 14, he points back to this passage. This is what he says. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And so just as this passage had something to say to Nicodemus, it also has something to say to us as well this morning. Earlier we mentioned the significance of snakes, the significance of serpents here, and the connection that it had to Egypt. There's an even greater significance of the serpents here. The serpent is a symbol of Satan the enemy of mankind. It was the tempting of Satan in the form of a serpent back in Genesis that caused our first parents, Adam and Eve, to sin, to fall. And it caused them to be cast out of the garden into the wilderness of the world. It's because of this serpent that we are all in bondage to sin. As Ephesians 2 tells us that we're in bondage to sin in two ways. One, we're born into it. And two, we do it. So by nature we are sinful, and then by our actions we are sinful. And so just as the Israelites were afflicted by snakes, we too are riddled with sin. And as Paul tells us, we've already said it this morning, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And as the Israelites would get bit by the snakes, they would die. So for us, our sin brings about a death for us as well. Israel needed something supernatural to happen. There was no antidote for the snakes. We need something supernatural to happen, to overcome sin. And so the Lord, He provides salvation for the Israelites. And He also provides salvation for you and for me. And so it's a curious thing, isn't it, that God would use a bronze serpent, isn't it? After the turkey giveaway yesterday, Bill and I were talking, and he just said, well, why do you think he uses a serpent? 
why do you think it's a bronze serpent on the pole? And this is a great question for us this morning. Why was the symbol of the curse the remedy for death? So I think the reason why he uses a serpent that it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. All the way back to Genesis 3.15 with the fall of Adam and Eve in which God says he'll put enmity between the serpent and between the seed of the woman. And that the seed of the woman would come one day and crush the head of the serpent. And there's a commentator named Don Smith and he makes this observation of the bronze serpent. He says, that which cured them of the curse was shaped into the likeness of that which wounded them. Let me say that again. That which cured them of the curse was shaped into the likeness of that which wounded him. Romans 8.3 tells us that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes it even more abundantly clear and gives us a great hope that for he made him who knew no sin to be sin. He that knew no sin would become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so do you see now why the object of Israel's salvation looked like the very thing that was afflicting them? In order for us to have salvation, Jesus had to take our sin upon himself. He had to bear the curse for our sins. And so this bronze serpent here is a picture of Christ identifying with our sin on our behalf. He takes it on himself. And what's more, the points of correspondence continue between these two passages and with Jesus. Both the serpent and Jesus would be impaled on a pole. They would both be lifted up for all to see. And life was given to all who looked on both. Life given to the Israelites, life given to those who looked to Jesus. And so Jesus, he goes to the cross as our substitute, looking like our sin, wearing our sin on himself. And so he bears the snake bite that we all deserve. And all we have to do is look and live. Just as the Israelites contributed absolutely nothing to this salvation, we know that we contribute nothing to our salvation. We have but one requirement. Look and live. Look to Jesus. We look away from ourselves. We look away from our own strength. We look away from the good deeds that we do. We look away from the bad deeds that we do. We look to Jesus. And so I'll leave you this morning with a Spurgeon quote again. It's a great quote. It's a little long. This remedy healed again and again. Very possibly after a man had been healed, he might go back to his work and be attacked by a second serpent. For there were broods of them about. What had he to do? Why, to look again. And if he was wounded a thousand times, he must look a thousand times. You dear child of God, if you have sin on your conscience, look to Jesus. The healthiest way of living where serpents swarm is to never take your eye off the brazen serpent at all. Ah, ye vipers, ye may bite if ye will. As long as my eye is upon the brazen serpent, I defy your fangs and poison bags, for I have a continual remedy at work within me. Temptation is overcome by the blood of Jesus. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. So my question for you this morning is, will you look to Jesus? Do you know the safety and the healing and the rest that is found there? Let's pray.